here. I love listening to women talk and laugh together. So fun. Glad you're here. I'm Lynn Kitchens, part of the teaching team. Happy to study God's words with you, especially today, because it's very encouraging what we learned today from James. This passage is all about trials. So raise your hand if you have never gone through a trial. Okay, good. I thought if someone raises their hand, the lecture is over. Okay, good. We've all gone through some serious trials. You may be in the middle of a trial right now, this very minute. This passage in James teaches us that during trials, anxiety and stress and despair do not need to be victors in our lives. In trials, faith is triumphant. Faith is triumphant in trials. In fact, one pastor wrote this. Faith pulls back the dark mask from the face of trouble and sees the angel underneath. Faith looks up at the dark cloud and sees it is filled with mercies that will break down on us. We have a God who is our loving father. He's also our great physician. And so written in these pages of his word is God's divine prescription that brings us life and brings us healing in the hard times. So just like everyone in this room, I've been through some serious trials, and years ago, there was a particular one that was happening in our home that was really hard, really confusing. I was coming to a place where I was feeling overwhelmed. And this uh, fiery trial, one afternoon, there was some fuel (laughs) dropped on it, And the next thing I knew, I was just running. And I ran out the back door, and I ran into my front yard, and I ran across my neighbor's yards, and I ran into the neighborhood, and I ran, and I ran, and I really wasn't even very conscious that I was running. Now, today, I would be conscious of that. What if I didn't have God? What does a person do that doesn't know God And why do we who know God sometimes act like a person who doesn't? Well, I was trying to run away from my pain. God let me know he was with me. And so I stopped and I turned around and I ran to him. I don't want to face dark days in that fear, in that hopelessness without God guiding me and comforting me, and praise God, we don't have to. God has provided the perfect path to meet our needs when we're hurt. But sometimes we realize we are on a different path. I'm on a different path. I'm tempted to run to the path of people, expecting other people to make everything right in my life. I can maybe want to run to the path of substance, drinking or drugs people do to make things better. The path of worldliness, expecting a popular philosophy or book or something like that to solve my problems. Maybe Dr. Phil. Is he still out there? (laughs) Okay. Sometimes we get on that path of distraction. Television, movies, friends, shopping, materialism, things. And all of those paths just lead to a dead end. When we run 
on God's path. Even in our pain, we can find peace and even joy and hope. I have a picture of that. This is a beautiful picture that that illustrates that. Getting to Jesus at the end of our life is like going through life facing all different kinds of trials, and some are easier than others. But as we climb, if we do the trials with God, there is even beauty on the path that we are climbing. Thank you. So finding hope in our pain is all about remembering who God is. Thank you for the slide. Okay, so first we have to remember he's purposeful and his purposes are good. Let's look at James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so first I want us to enter a little bit into the pain of the people that James is writing to. These are Jews that have been scattered by persecution all over, away from their homeland. So now they're living among a lot of lost pagan people. He wrote to believers who were ostracized and belittled by their family and probably those in their community. He wrote to those who had to leave what was comfortable and face new challenges. He wrote to those who were living in a broken world and experiencing everything a broken world brings. And I thought, that sounds like my life, doesn't it? Don't those things ring true in your life as well? So then these words from James are not only for them, they're for you and I as well. But how in the world are we supposed to find joy in the midst of very hard things? This sounds like a crazy command to me from James, but it is a command, counting trials as joy. How do we do that? Here's the simple answer. We have to have a deep God perspective about life, a God perspective about life. When we look at life in that perspective, things begin to look differently. James wants these believers to understand that we shouldn't view trials as tribulations that we have to fix, but we should view them as testings of our faith to endure. Trials are not punishments. They are not curses. In fact, in these verses, the verb form for trial means putting something to the test. It's our faith that is being tested. And when we endure In that faith, we're going to come out looking more like Christ than we would have looked if we had not gone through that trial. So we change our perspective about life. And then trials are joyful when we really believe deep in our heart, God is accomplishing some good things in this. There are good purposes. Okay, even then, when I was writing, they thought, are they really still joyful? Is that joyfulness? And so here's what I think. Joy is not so much about a feeling as it is about our faith, as it is about Christian maturity. We're not putting a pretend smile as we walk around. Those people are sort of creepy when they do that. (laughs) 
we have a joyful hope in our God. And it comes deep inside of us. It's that inner confidence in God that brings us hope. So tries our jo- trials are joy when God is our goal. You know, I thought about Jesus and his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were all siblings. The Bible says Jesus loved them. Jesus knew Lazarus was ill, but he stayed away, and Lazarus died because Jesus knew God's deeper purpose behind that trial. So when he came into town and Lazarus' sister Martha saw Jesus, she went running to him. He did not say, be joyful, Lazarus died. Rejoice, your brother has died. He did not say that. He did point her to the fact that God was involved with this and said, your brother will rise again. When Mary took Jesus to Lazarus' tomb, he took a look at the people weeping. He took a look at the tomb and death, and he also wept along with them, even though He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. When he looked at the tomb and everybody was looking at Jesus, look how much he loved him, he's crying. And then he said, move the stone away. It was Martha who protested. And Jesus turned to her and looked at her and said, didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? You know, Jesus understands our grief because he experienced it all of the time. What he doesn't understand is leaving God out of the picture of our trials. And when we grieve, in our trials, can't we believe that since God loves us as much as Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that somehow we will see the glory of God in this trial we're going through. It's a choice we have. We can run to God. We can run to our pain and give into it, which ends in a hard time, which ends in a lot of pain. So James isn't saying be joyful for the trial. He's saying be joyful in the trial. We don't have to say, look, everyone, yay, I broke my leg. But we would say, yay, that God's going to be with me while I work through this broken leg. He's got some good purposes in it. I have a dear friend who really illustrated this. She was telling me how she was working in the garden all one Saturday, and she was tired, and she thought, I'll just plant this last flower here, took the wrong step backwards, fell over hard on her elbow, and dislocated her elbow which I think must be very painful, and she said it was. So she's lying there in the dirt on the ground alone with a dislocated elbow, and she tells me she starts yelling out, Jesus, help me! (laughs) Have mercy on my arm! Help me! What did she do right there? She immediately gave her trial to God. She immediately was not alone in her trial. She called out to God at that time. She wasn't glad that her elbow was dislocated, but she was glad God was there with her. And she told me also that he gave her strength she needed to get through that day and everything that went with it. 
So James tells us a fruit of testing is steadfastness or endurance, which means staying power. How do we accomplish staying power in trials? We endure them because we believe that they are tools in the hand of our loving Father when we know God is not going to waste a minute of our pain. I know that the disciples and the apostles recognize this. Look at 1 Peter 1 and see what Peter says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James is telling us when we persevere, we will be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. He is talking about spiritual maturity, growing toward the perfection of Christian character. This is God's goal in our trials. Um, and it will be fully realized in heaven, but we're on a path in that direction. And the truth is, without trials, we wouldn't get there. We wouldn't experience spiritual maturity. We wouldn't experience a strong Christian character. One author wrote this. He was a mature man. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences in my life that at the time felt desolating and painful. But I look back now with particular satisfaction. I can say with complete truthfulness, everything I learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my life has been through affliction. You know, Paul even preached that same thing. Look at Acts 14. He's talking to new believers here. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying what? Saying through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Look what he also says in Romans. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings Knowing suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we have to ask ourselves during the dark days, who or what am I running to? Let's not waste our trials Let's run to God, be better, and not bitter. A big difference. I read this poem, Oh, let my trembling soul be still and trust in your wise and holy will. I cannot, Lord, your purpose see, yet all is well since ruled by thee. Okay, remember that he is wise. Let's look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So when I rely on my own wisdom and trials, my trials get worse. I don't know about you. That's what happens to me. I thought of that expression, I've made a mess of things. I think it originated with me. You know what? That can sometimes be a good place to be because when we make a mess down here, we slowly do this. We look up for help. Trials drive us to a greater dependency on God and make us recognize our own inadequacies. And when you read these verses, they're actually, to me, unbelievable. Unbelievable but true. God waits with wisdom for each of our particular situations. He is just waiting to give the wisdom only he can bring. Just like all of his other riches, he has wisdom in abundance available for the asking. Divine wisdom. When we ask, James says, first you're going to see that God is generous. He will give wisdom abundantly and liberally. And then he's gracious. There is no reproach, which means without discrimination, without question. Without hesitation, why wouldn't we run to God from the very beginning? Look what Romans 11 says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And when we do, James tells us here, our prayers need to be covered in faith or we are on shaky ground. We are the unstable person. The unstable person runs to God without true faith. The unstable person doubts God. The word doubt here means vacillating. I think today we might say that person's flaky. Um, Another word. The unstable person is double-minded, which means their mind and their heart are divided between God and the world. God's ways, the world's ways. God's truth, the world's lies. Those without true faith run to God for a quick fix. They want to tell God what to do. Inside, they really doubt that God is interested or maybe even able to help out. The unstable person runs to God briefly and then runs to something else. It's like a wave. I know if you've been on the seashore and you see a beautiful wave that was really reckless out there and it comes to the sand and it comes on shore and it's calm and it's beautiful, but then all at once a chaotic wave brings it out and there it is in turbulence again. That's the unstable person. But in faith, going to God, believing he hears our prayers and will answer, we wait for him. We know his wisdom will come because we've asked for it. And then the result of that is this new peace in our hearts that we did not know was possible. Look at Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you, 
I like circled that word guards. Can you imagine that? Peace will guard our hearts, guard our minds when we're facing such confusing and difficult trials in our lives. You know, when our son Tyler was just a few months old, he was able to sit up, but he wasn't crawling yet. I was holding him on one hip, and I was holding a basket of laundry on the other hip, and I was going upstairs, and I was going to put the laundry away in his closet and put Tyler away in his crib for his nap. And so I thought, I'll do the laundry first, and I went in, and I set Tyler seated on the floor of his closet. I put all the clothes away, and then I turned around, and I left, and I shut the door, which turned the light off, and I left Tyler sitting on the floor in the closet. Okay, I ran downstairs and started doing laundry. I did a lot of laundry. I was about 20 minutes, and all of a sudden, it hit me. And this fear gripped my heart because I thought, why hasn't he made a peace? Why have I not heard anything? So my brain immediately goes to, um, as I'm running up the stairs, what did he choke on lying on the bottom of his closet floor? What has strangled him lying on the bottom of his closet floor? And I went to the closet door and listened again, nothing. And, okay, I have to throw in here this little thing. My mother-in-law had crocheted a life-size doll of Tyler's size, a little boy doll with Tyler's blonde hair and blue eyes. I get to the door. I open it slowly, and I see the baby doll on its face. (laughs) That's my first thing I see. And I'm like, I almost faint when I look at it. And then sitting next to it is Tyler calmly looking at me, just sitting there. How could he sit that long in a dark closet? And I thought, you know, he expected me to come back. He trusted me. He knew I would come, and then I would take him out of the darkness. You know, that's really who we should be. When we pray to God, we're in the darkness, but we're calm because we expect him to help us. We know he's going to come. We trust him. And he's going to take us out of the darkness. Might not be my timing. Might not have been Tyler's timing. (laughs) And might not always be the way we expect him to come. But we're calm while we wait. This is the person that prays in faith. When we pray, The answer from God depends on our assurance in God. Okay, remember he's just. Let's look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So this seemed weird to me, why in the middle of this, these passages, he all of a sudden talks about the rich and the poor. Well, first of all, the people he's writing to, when they would read this letter later, might start to think, well, she has trials that are easy. My trials are hard. Or his are, you know, he knew he was going to be writing to both the rich and the poor 
and they might decide who has real serious trials, who doesn't, and maybe the poor person thinks you rich people don't even have trials. So in this diverse community where lifestyles would be miles apart and hardships would vary, James is letting the Christians know a trial is a trial. And you're both going to have trials. Trials make everyone equally dependent on God and bring them to the same level. God is no respecter of persons. There's no kind of person that he prefers over another, not favoring anyone. God's grace and hope are available to all of us. Look at Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So James wants to contrast the position of the poor person, the one in humble circumstances with the wealthy people. Both groups are told to boast, and that does not mean an arrogant boast. This is like a joyous pride the poor person in their high position, the rich person in their humiliation. What that means is this. The poor person who has nothing in this world, he rejoices in his future spiritual standing. He will be just like everyone together, worshiping God in heaven. And then the rich person who does have much in this world humbly realizes that his riches mean nothing. They don't mean a thing. His only lasting security is his faith and hope in God and the spiritual standing he will have right next to the poor man and all diversity surrounding him. And so James tells the rich man, just as a flower fades and withers away, death and judgment can end a person's dependence on material things. His point is all Christians should be evaluating their life here on earth um, from a heavenly viewpoint, not an earthly one. Both rich and poor sets aside the good and bad of their earthly position, and they prepare for their heavenly ones by facing trials the same way. Faith in God. Faith in God. Okay, remember God is holy. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, blessed means happy. James is letting us know happiness comes to the person who has staying power under trials, the person who gets an A on his test, the person who loves God deeply enough to be able to do that, there is a crown awaiting for that person. So the Jews would envision the races, the Greek races, they would envision a crown of a laurel wreath that was placed on an athlete's head when they just did this trying event and they were victorious in that event. So the crown symbolized glory and symbolized honor. And in these verses, those two words really fit. The crown of life that we're giving is the emblem of spiritual success given to us 
by the king of the universe. We run the race. We run it in faith. We've called upon him in the dark days. Awaiting us is the crown of life. And we can even read that as the crown is life. And that means today we wear that crown and it means we have a full and abundant life. We wear a crown like spiritual maturity because that's what it shows. And tomorrow we're wearing a crown, which means eternal life that is waiting for us. And guess what we're going to do with that crown? We're going to put it down at Christ's feet and giving him the glory. A full life today and eternal life tomorrow is the reward of those who remain steadfast. Happy are those who persevere. You know, I've mentioned my father-in-law a few times, and um, he came to Christ at 65, passed away in his 80s. So between those years, after he came to Christ, he was all on and all in for God. And he lived in Mexico and fed the poor But I was as equally impressed when he had to come back here because of his health. He had to have half of a leg removed. He had to live in a nursing home. He had literally nothing, no possessions, very little money, and he was happy. He would write on pieces of paper, thank you, Jesus, And he would wheel himself around the nursing home and pass those out to people. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. He has endured, and he was enduring one of the biggest trials at that time in his life. And those were pretty much the last words on his lips when he died. Thank you, Jesus. Happy is the person who perseveres. Verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, here's a truth that's important to remember to protect us. Every trial brings temptations with it. So James is saying here, let's be aware of that. And I thought, well, let's say if we were having trouble with our finances. Let's say that was a trial. We might be tempted to say, God isn't providing for me. Therefore, I might have to cheat on my taxes a little bit. That's God's fault. When we are having unjust suffering, we might be tempted to say, God is not loving and falsely accusing. James is rebuking people who blame God for their trials. God does test us. He doesn't tempt us. Temptations come when we are not handling our trials in faith. If we blame God in hard times, our trials will become temptations to sin and lead us into defeat. And also when we're saying it's God tempting us, we are really trying to free ourselves from the responsibility of the sins that we are stepping into. Those who say God's tempting them don't really know God very well. James reminds them, hey, God is holy. God can't tempt anyone toward evil. There is nothing in God to which evil can make an appeal. 
And so therefore, God is not a tempter. So we ask ourselves, so if that's the case, where is the evil making an appeal? Let's look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the source of temptation comes from within us. The Greek word used here in verse 14 is referring to an illustration of fish being drawn out of a hiding place. And it's saying desire is the hook. Desire has some bait on the hook, and the desire is enticing, enticing. And so if the attractiveness of that desire isn't resisted by us, we come toward it, and we're hooked. The lure of it has hooked us, and desire becomes sin when we willingly give into it, when we willingly pursue it. And then in verse 15, James compares it, desire as a mother. And so if desire's a mother who willfully brings or births desire to life, that child is sin. And when sin is nourished and growing, it gives birth to death. He's trying to let them know, hey, sin is not this spontaneous act. You've thought about it. It's a selfish process that comes from your heart. So the right response to temptation brings about spiritual maturity. The wrong response to temptation brings about spiritual poverty. We can thank God. He loves us so much. He provides a way of escape when we are being tempted. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay. Let's remember God is good. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, send again. Hey, Don't be deceived thinking God's at fault. God is good. In fact, God, whose gracious character is unchanging, is the source of everything that is good. Satan is the author of sin and death. God is the author of life. And we see in this passage that he's called the father of lights. The Jews would call God that and be referring to him as creator, the creator of the sun and the moon and the stars. The patterns of all those lights shift and change over the earth. But James is saying, that doesn't happen with God. There is no shifting in who he is. 
No shadows surrounding our God. His good and holy character will never change. What if it did? How horrible would life be? What if we woke up each day and wondered, is God kind today or cruel? Is he forgiving or is he hateful? Is he with me or am I alone? We have that peace every day. It surrounds us because when we went to bed, we know God is the same God in the morning as when we went to bed the night before. He's a good God, and he gives us gifts, and he never changes. And James has us looking at two of the best gifts he gives us. God looks down at us. He sees we're sinners. He knows who we are, and yet of his own will, he gives us the gift of life, the gift of salvation, the undeserved gift. This is God's sovereign determination in our life, and we reap the joy of it every single day. Because of that, we are called his first fruits. Remember in the Old Testament when the harvest was coming in and God had commanded the people, you get the first fruits, the best parts of your harvest, and you come to me and you dedicate and give them to me. It's a promise of a full harvest coming. And so as his first fruits, we are reborn. We are the first evidence of God's new creation And it shows that a full harvest is coming. While we wait for him, we're enjoying living out this salvation. It's a foretaste of the glorious future harvest. And I wrote down here, we are God's first installment in his universal redemptive plan. That is a gift from God. And then we were born into this salvation through another wonderful gift, through the power of the word of truth, the incredible gift of the gospel. He writes his word on these dark hearts, and he cleanses them. He redeems us. It's his gift to us. And with the power of his word, he gives us a new heart. Anything good in us is because of God's undeserved goodness to us. In our suffering, why would we not run to a good God who has more gifts waiting for us? So I just jotted down a few practical ways we can do that. First, search for God's good path by studying his map daily. I know I'm speaking to the choir here, or you wouldn't be here. You believe in the power and the importance of reading God's word. It's not hard to find God's plans for us when we read his word every day. You know, I kept uh, our little two-year-old grandson a couple weekends ago, and Ted and I had this book lying there where an artist, it was called Portraits of Christ, an artist had painted what he thought Christ might have looked like on the cover, and Miles came up to me and was holding it and said, who's that? And I said, that's Jesus. Well, I didn't want to explain. Well, he might have looked like this, but so I just said, that's Jesus. He goes like this, what? 
He looked at the book. This is Jesus. I said, yes. Read it to me. And he sat down with that little paperback book, which I opened a few pages, and he was like, what's in his? I said, I have other books with pictures of Jesus that are made for children. He sits on the couch, get me books about Jesus. And throughout the weekend, I'd be cooking or doing something, he'd say, get me a Jesus book. Okay, okay, woohoo. Echevia, get me a book about Jesus. I can make it through this crazy world when I'm close to Jesus, and I know about him because of his word. Secondly, make a list of other paths you've taken and turn around. And and I'm being serious there. I mean, stop and think, what do I usually do first when I'm getting fearful in trials or pain or there's dark days? Look around. Look where paths are worn down and just make a committed change. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go down God's. Thirdly, surrender the baggage that has slowed you down. Sometimes running to God for us looks more like a slow walk and there's lots of detours because we are carrying too many burdens on our back to take that quick run to God. Um, I can remember when we were hiking once, our family in Colorado, and my husband Ted was in the front and he had left his backpack unzipped at the top and my kids took turns throwing big rocks in it when he wasn't noticing so that his burdens got heavier and heavier and he'd start complaining about his backpack, slowed him down. You know, in our lives, we have those burdens. (laughs) They're like rocks on our back from our lack of faith or from sins. They can be fear. They can be anger. They can be bitterness. God just says, Get those out of your backpack. Give them to me. I will forgive you. I will forgive you. Come to me, and then you can run to me. You don't have to just slowly meander my way. You can make it to me. And then ask God to be your compass. Remember, we talked about his wisdom. We have to ask for it. But here's what I think about this, too. Sometimes I just want to be in control of my trials. I think I know what to do, and I'm going to do, you know, really letting God be our compass means, okay, I'm stepping back. You take the lead. Why did you go that way? Okay, I'm still going to follow you. What are you doing here? Okay. Let him take the lead. He's the one with the wisdom. And finally, make God the goal of your journey. A trial isn't a trial. It's about seeking God. It's about becoming more like him. It's about growing our faith. It's about bringing glory to God. So we run to him and we invite him to fulfill all the good purposes that he has for our life. And then we find out, I'm never alone. I am never alone in these dark times. Deuteronomy 33 says, the eternal God is your dwelling place, your home, your dwelling place, the place you reside, and underneath are his everlasting arms. This is a good place to be. 
remember who he is. And I'll praise you in this storm. I will lift my hands, for you are who you 